fashion and textile industries are amongst the worst offenders when it comes to environmental damage and pollution. Modern linear manufacture that's typical of so-called fast fashion in particular can be hugely wasteful, especially when it comes to water. Unfortunately, the sector boasts a pretty comprehensive checklist of other possible nasties, from the use of fossil fuels and chemicals in manufacture to dyeing and finishing fabrics, through to the creation and dispersal of synthetic fibres and microplastics. While the industry has been wising up to its responsibilities, it's not happening fast enough. Fashion production makes up 10% of human carbon emissions, and what's more, a staggering 85% of all textiles go to the dump each year, according to recent data from the UNECE. It's fairly easy to see, therefore, why we continue to hear the familiar refrain that fashion shouldn't cost the earth. So how have clever entrepreneurs and smart businesses been addressing this huge and urgent problem in creative ways? How have they been employing new innovations, not just to change how products are sourced, made and sustained, but to transform the whole mindset of consumers when it comes to the products they buy and how they look after them? We're meeting two great entrepreneurs today who are doing exactly this in two quite different ways. One is challenging received wisdom on manufacture and calling time on wastage. I think another thing that really blew me away is just understanding how much we make. Like we make well over 100 billion garments a year. And within a year, like what we make, 60% of it goes to landfill. It's kind of thoughtless and careless that we just don't have respect for not only the environment, but just even the products that we make anymore. Like people don't care about it. They don't have the same value that they used to. Another will share her ambitions to create the world's biggest fashion aftercare brand and explain how powering aftercare for the sector can help to reframe the way consumers engage with and sustain the products they buy. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. We start the show by sitting down with Beth Espinet, co-founder and CPO at Unspun. Unspun is a robotics and digital clothing company building custom jeans on demand for every individual consumer. Their mission is to reduce those grim global carbon emissions through automated, localised and intentional manufacturing. Oh, and to make great fitting jeans too, of course. The company, based in San Francisco and Hong Kong, aims to rapidly transition the industry into one that is more intentional, inclusive and efficient by eliminating standing inventory and returns. They're seeking to do this by tailoring each garment to individual customers via 3D iPhone scans, making every pair of jeans unique. Beth Espinet, co-founder of Unspun. Let's dig into a little bit of the backstory. You're one of the sort of product and innovation brains, of course, of the business, but you've done quite a few things. You've worked in product development, in material science, product design, you've done teaching, you've reviewed other concepts for other people. And I try and get a bit of a sense of how, how you wound up, if you like, in the chair that you're occupying today. I love this question for any person I meet, to be honest. So I'm, I'm thankful that you're asking me because I just think, you know, life is not very linear and it shouldn't be. And I think that's where the most interesting things happen is when people kind of pass boundaries or silos and they transfer ideas around. So to me, it doesn't seem so varied. I, I kind of box it within the field of design. It's all kind of tied together to me. But yeah, it, it might seem a little bit, <laughs> a little bit wandering. I think that I've been inspired by science and art since a young age. I remember 
thinking about, you know, do I want to be a surgeon or do I want to actually a fashion designer was on the list, you know, in, in like sixth grade and they ask you what you want to be a surgeon and a fashion designer. Those are on the list. And I think I'm just fascinated by kind of the world around us and how things work. And kind of long story short, I think the science and art come together really nicely in fashion design and product design, and especially in manufacturing, because you you have to be thinking about a lot of different factors going into the final product. Like if you're only strong in the science side of things, you're going to create products that no one wants. And if you're really strong in the art side of things, then you're going to create products that don't work. So I think it's really interesting to think about all of those things coming together in like the best possible product. Coming out of school, I studied fashion design in school. My parents were not excited about that at all. <laughs> they, were, they were very flexible to start. They kept their mouths shut, which was really nice. And I think 10 years later, they're finally coming around to it. They can see how energized it, it makes me, how happy I am. I think they thought I was never going to find a job, which is you know, in some cases, kind of true. I'm, I work for myself these days. And who knows if I if I didn't work for myself, I don't know if anyone else would hire me. So that's where I am now. But coming out of school, I went into the industry and was a bit, I guess I felt jaded by kind of what was going on in the industry. And that kind of led me on the path I am today. Let's talk a little more about Unspun. Like many great concepts, there is at the heart maybe a kind of beautiful simplicity, which is to address quite directly a lot of the things you're talking about. Why is there this standardization? Why is there this high cost? Why do we not look for more sustainable, more inclusive, more tailored solutions? And can we use technology? Can we leverage all of these recent innovations to do it? And that's, I guess, what Unspun does, right? I mean, is that the kind of elevator pitch that you still have to give people? Or do you try and sum up what Unspun actually is in a, in a different way now that you've kind of really got things bedded in? It depends on the day and the person I'm, I'm speaking with. There are sometimes that brands or consumers even like they're interested in different aspects of what we do because you can look at it from the lens of sustainability and say, we only make things when people want them. And like, that's the most immediate impact we can have. And we're doing that today. We've always been a zero inventory company. Or you can look at it from that same sustainability lens, but from a longer term and say, we're setting things up for circularity because of the way that we produce. It doesn't damage the materials that you're putting into the product in the long term. So you can get them back much more easily than you can with the current manufacturing. So there's that sustainability lens. There's also the inclusivity lens, being able to make anything for anyone, that we're not limited by these really arbitrary size sets and these standards that just aren't realistic and make people feel bad about themselves. That's another lens that we were driven by. Like that was not necessarily why we started the company in the beginning, it was really about seeing a better system, holistic way of doing things. But I think on a day-to-day, -day, I'm really, really driven by consumers and how they interact with us and them saying, I've never felt so good in this product before. I've never felt good about myself because of the jeans when I try them on at the store. I, I go through piles and nothing fits me. And of course, I feel like the problem is me, but it's it's clearly the system. So it really depends on on the person. But I think one of my favorite ways of looking at it personally is, again, like that big picture, how should we manufacture? And humans have really optimized to the point where subtractive manufacturing, so taking goods from the earth, you know, resources, 
and like whittling them away until they are something that we want. Like that's how a lot of our goods are produced these days. And that leads to a lot of issues. Like not only is it hard to automate, but obviously you have a lot of waste that gets cut away. And what do you do with that? But that's not at all how nature makes things. Like they don't take <laughs> take a big rock and whittle it away into, you know, something that they need. They instead build on themselves. It's all about growth and decay and systems aren't linear. It's not like when humans arrived that there were a bunch of trash piles. Instead, you know, things would go throughout their life cycle and then decay into something that would then grow and be beautiful again. And I think that we can get there, but we'd have to almost trash the system that we have today and think about it from scratch again. There's still so much that companies not only don't have to talk about, but they don't even know themselves. It's really tricky. It's just because our, well, not maybe just, but a big reason why is that the supply chain is so convoluted. It's so complicated. It's hard to follow. So you just don't know where things are coming from. But what we've gathered over conversations we've had with B2B partners is that over a third of what they produce, they assume and they they know will go to landfill before it even goes to the consumer. So they're just writing off like a third of what they're making is just that's the inherent risk we take. We know it's not going to sell, but we're going to do it anyway because it's cheap and it will get us closer to what the consumer wants at the end of the day. They just don't know what third that is of the stuff they're making, right? If they did, they just wouldn't make it. So that's like one of the big things that we're addressing today. Long term, we have a lot of other things that we'll address, but the inventory is like the easiest thing that we can address today. People buy the product and then then we make it. So it's a one-to-one. You won't end up with that 30% that goes straight to landfill or it gets incinerated. I think another thing that really blew me away is just understanding how much we make. Like we make well over 100 billion garments a year. And within a year, like what we make, 60% of it goes to landfill. It's kind of thoughtless and careless that we just don't have respect for not only the environment, but just even the products that we make anymore. Like people don't care about it. They don't have the same value that they used to. Tell us a bit more about the technology you're already working with, body scanners and the like, and the further innovations in, for example, 3D weaving that you have planned. And your your broader ambitions, I guess, Beth, to innovate and to use tech solutions to address some of the huge and urgent challenges ahead. Within the context of business, but also trying to emulate how, how nature produces, we're trying to answer that question, how can we build on demand? And it comes down to to technology. We could try to go backwards to before the sewing machine or right after the sewing machine in the 1800s when you would just make something when you needed it. But the world moves too fast for that. There's no way you could keep up. So that's why we've turned to technology. So we've built software and we've built hardware. The software was much faster for us to develop. We had something launched in the market within six months. The hardware has taken us to this point five years to develop. It's just It's just a different beast. Things have to work in the physical world and there are always things like literally hitting each other. So with the software, what we're able to do is unlock the automation of turning someone's body scan into a perfect fitting pattern. So you can create and kind of democratize customized fit that way. Like anyone, almost anyone, sorry, it is still a $200 price point. So we realize that's not as accessible as it could be, but it's still much more accessible than any than other ways of getting custom fit out there. And so what that tech does is, like you said, a body scan. It basically creates a point cloud of your body. And we use the technology that's in an iPhone 
We also have standing scanners that are in our stores in Hong Kong and San Francisco. And then we always have a few floating pop-ups so that people are welcome to go try to find one of those and get one in person. But if not, in iPhones, they have the facial recognition. So that uses infrared. Infrared is something that this, the sun is always emitting. We're always being hit by infrared. So it's really no big deal to to have it on our phones. But it basically, yeah, creates a digital twin of your body. So we understand what is your shape. Everyone has their own shape and things should fit you perfectly. You shouldn't have to try to squeeze yourself into this mass produced stuff that just exists already. So that information goes through our software and creates perfect fitting patterns from it. It's going to, the pattern is going to change based on, you know, how you want your design of your gene to be. So that's the software side of things. The hardware, which is something we're launching this year, we call it Vega. It's 3D weaving. That, again, we've worked on for five years and we're creating pants with. We're really focused on the lower body. Fit is really difficult for the lower body and there's a huge market. <laughs> Anyone in the world needs pants. So it's, it's a good thing kind of to focus on at the beginning, but we're definitely not limited to it. And so what this does is it skips over a ton of steps that you would normally go through in order to create product. And it's completely seamless. So you put yarn into the machine and then along with, you know, machine instructions telling the machine what to make, it then outputs product. It's like basket making, sort of, but just for clothing. Do you subscribe to those old adages? I've kind of mentioned a couple already, you know, things like, I don't know, you learn more when things go wrong than when they go right, or the greater the challenge you face, the bigger the opportunity. Are those kinds of, I don't know what they are, subprime mantras? Do you, do you subscribe to any of those? Do you find them useful? Do you think they're helpful for people who maybe are taking the first steps on an entrepreneurial path? I think the thing that drives me the most is just a curiosity. And I think that this is true of a lot of entrepreneurs that they they see something that could be possible. They see an opportunity and it's just hard for them to step away from it. It's hard to unsee it and to not have it realized. So when I started Unspun and then eventually found my awesome co-founders, Walden and Kevin, I had been a professor at the time and I just found that I was ignoring my students. I was just not the professor I wanted to be because I really wanted to see this happen. And so the curiosity has really driven me the most. But I think these adages do play a big part in keeping us going. It's a good reminder that you're going to hit the wall a lot and things are not always going to work, but that you're better for it. Because if things are always working, I mean, you never really pause to reflect and think about like why it worked or why things are going right. So I don't think that we internalize and build off of it quite as much. And just by trying new things, like you're kind of going through uncharted territory and and that in itself is is a challenge and we're always making educated guesses and there are definitely things that we <laughs> that we don't do right. I, I remember when we were first selling our our jeans, the the jeans that take the body scans and turn those into patterns, the jeans that we're selling on the market today. But back when we didn't even have we didn't even have images of them on the website. We didn't even have a website. We had a truck that we drove around Hong Kong. We had some fabric in it. And tried to entice people into this truck, which in retrospect was kind of a silly idea. I can't believe people actually went into it. And uh, they would get their body scan in there. There were two customers who wanted to get, they, they just had their minds set on getting the rigid, non-stretch fabric in the tight, slim fit. And we said, well, you know, we stand for people being able to design their own products. So yes, go for it. You can do it. And they put them on and 
you know, one ripped and the other one could not bend, <laughs> bend their knee, could not lift up their, their knee. And so kind of learn like it's good to give people power, but also realize that we need to set up some guardrails as well. So that was definitely a learning. There have been countless other other learnings over time. But I think that's the that's the fun of it. I'm not very good at replicating things, like doing things that have been done before. I think I get bored super easily. And so that's one of the reasons why we're trying new things. It's, it's never boring, never at all. Beth Espinet, co-founder of Unspun. And you can learn more about Unspun and their amazing approach to well, to almost every aspect of the manufacture of their products, head to unspun.io. Well, next up, let's hear from Vanessa Jacobs, the co-founder and CEO of The Restory, the world's first aftercare platform for fashion, helping the world's biggest brands offer care, repair and restoration to their customers all around the world. Having sealed aftercare partnerships since launch with celebrated stores like Harvey Nicks and Selfridges, more have followed in the last couple of years with brands like Farfetch and last year Manolo Blahnik. In a recent episode of our sister programme Eureka, Vanessa shared the origin story of the restaurant with us and explained the team's early learnings. Well, I continued by asking Vanessa more about those brands that the restaurant was seeking to work with. Why don't they themselves deliver better aftercare? They sell more new products by not doing it, of course. But if one thinks about other big-ticket items, like automotive maybe, aftercare is just so important as part of the way consumers perceive brands. So while it's intuitive maybe that brands wouldn't want to cannibalise new sales, how come this field was so clear for Vanessa and her colleagues in the restaurant to enter? So if you think of it like a bit of, without getting too specific, like a pie chart, there's some slice of that that is built in obsolescence. There is some, depending on the brand, there is some slice of it that some brands, and I I think they've largely gotten away from this, but cannibalization of new sales. But I think the vast majority of why they don't, and they, the vast majority of why they don't is that it's just, it's really hard. It's, I mean, Mm. there are tens of thousands of different variables relating to product, relating to consumer preference, relating to nature and type of damage that just makes it really, really hard. And I think that's a fundamentally you know, managing all of that, but also putting in the infrastructure, putting in the technical capabilities to be able to deal with that and work around those things. That's just, it's just really hard. And I think that's probably the biggest reason. And they know this. I mean, they, they know that the relationship benefits are enormous and they, and they know this, but it's just, it's so fundamentally different to what they do. And obviously, I guess the other thing that strikes me as interesting is that then an upstart, and I, I mean that in the, in the most positive, <laughs> in the most positive way, how can how can an, an upstart? You said you know you and your colleagues and collaborators. How on earth do you manage to deliver then a scalable solution to a problem that is that complex, that, that's of that scale? Is part of it the fact that you were kind of a bit fearless, maybe a bit crazy? You went into it with completely unbound by pre, you know expectation in the sector. It seems kind of crazy that it can be a startup that can deliver an answer to such a tricky challenge. So definitely a bit of naivete. And then always coming from like, a ba- I came from a banking and consulting background. Those are fundamentally service businesses. So naively, I was thinking like, well, I come from these 
global billion dollar service brands, of course you can have a billion dollar service brand. So um, yeah, completely naive. We've done about 60,000 orders at this stage. That is how we built it. And that's how we figured out how to scale it. So every mistake we made, every time we ruined something, every time we lost something, every time we pissed off a client, like we would treat that as a system failure and work on the system. So we, we always had this very systematic way of thinking. We always knew it had to be We had to figure out some way to scale it, but there was a lot of, yeah, we just made a lot, a lot of mistakes, but we made sure we learned from each of those mistakes each time. So if if somebody screws up, we don't, we don't make a big deal out of it. We don't punish it, but we do do a thorough review of it. And we try to make sure that those lessons are baked into everything that we do so that we try not to make them again. Same mistake again. Well, I was going to ask you about cliches of entrepreneurship or truisms of business. And one of them is this old one that you learn more when things go wrong than when they go Right. And you've pretty much explicitly said, yeah, we didn't just learn more, but actually that was the makings of the business. Do you find those, your background is interesting, you know, having worked as a management consultant also, are you a bit cynical about those kinds of mantras and buzzwords and that kind of thing? Or actually, do you find that some of them have real utility that can help drive a business forward? Yes, I think a lot of the platitudes are annoying, but I guess for, you know, who's ever putting them out there, they're putting it out there because it, it works for them. So while it might be something that I find personally irritating isn't, isn't you know, for them, if it works, great. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not here to judge. It's a hard thing to do no matter what you're building. And so whatever gets you through the day. <laughs> Well, that's very, that's very, that's very accommodating and patient of you. I don't know if I, if I don't know if I would be as, pati- as patient as you, as you. No, I mean are. we don't. We didn't set out to make a lot of mistakes. I mean, we knew we would, but we weren't trying to make mistakes. But we, we did realize like ultimately this needs to be baked into into technology, mm. you know, amongst other things. So we knew it was going to take that at least to systematize it. Absolutely. I did mention earlier about your partnerships, of course, within the business and then more broadly. And again, I don't know when you, you've had some very high profile brands, whether they're from kind of retail or yeah. producers themselves, of course, that have partnered with you over a few years now. And I think it's what half the revenues from these kinds of partnerships is or more yes. even. What was that journey like? Is it easier now uh, to get these brands to come on board? Are they actually yeah. coming knocking? Presumably yes. they, they are. How was that? A, was again, was there a sort of a sea change or did that kind of happen a little bit incrementally? Did you have to hit a certain scale before they started to take notice? How did it? How did it? Happen? It's not. A for, it's not. Well, with regard to the brands, it's not for them. It's not a certain level of scale for them. It's a certain level of credibility and 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 trust. So for us, our kind of recursive strategy, I suppose, is that we knew we needed to start the category. We wanted to elevate this experience from this dusty old high street experience to something that was more like fashion. Our our view is that the experience of owning your wardrobe should feel as much a part of the fashion experience as buying it to begin with. So our strategy was create the category, get that consumer demand going. That consumer demand, we'll use that to get into the retailers. They're a bit more flexible than brands for the most part. And we would get into the retailers and the retailers would give us credibility to get into get into the brands. And that's kind of where we are now. Harvey Nichols was our first retailer in 2018. Selfridges came in 2019. 2020 was Harrods. And last year was Farfetch, Manola Blahnik, Nicholas Kirkwood, Brown's fashion and then we have there's another retailer who we've secured but we've not yet launched so I, I, I won't mention them but yeah so we we landed five partnerships in one year and this year we'll we're expecting to double it so well and just tell me about were there any you mentioned obviously sort of relocating to the UK I mean presumably from the first moment it's like wow Harvey Nicks is in and then Selfridges Harrods Manuel Blahnik I mean was each one of these a kind of pinch yourself do you, I mean did you have to force yourself you yeah. and your colleagues to take a step back and say wow, this is actually happening or? 
I don't know, we was it did it did that accord with your ambitions and expectations? <laughs> yeah, I mean there there are lots of moments like that where you're like, wow, this you know, this really happened. But it's almost like when you've gone on holiday, like it was so great, and then the minute you're back it's <laughs> it's like, okay, back to work. So the the high is sometimes short lived, unfortunately. That's the nature. That's the nature <laughs> of being nature. A, a successful entrepreneur, I presume. What does the future look like? You've already alluded to. Shame we, we can't get an exclusive. Some of these new names that you're going to announce, <laughs> but that's obviously all very exciting. Is it about continuing that trajectory and continuing to service? Of course, this is the important point, I guess. The the clients who come in via these other associations, or do you have even greater ambition? I guess because of this shifting narrative around sustainability, the circular economy, this sort of thing. I don't know, it must be quite easy to plan even more ambitious yeah, expansions yeah. and new geographies. What does the yeah, future yeah, we're very, we're what does very that look ambition. like? So we, our, our ambition is to be the world's to be the world's biggest aftercare brand. So we'll continue to do that. But what we've also always said is that our ambition is to power aftercare for the fashion industry, starting with luxury. So where we are is a bit like a bit the journey that companies like ThreadUp and even Farfetch have gone on. You start to build a consumer proposition and you build all of this infrastructure and, and, and technology to scale that business. And then you realize that you've actually you've built an asset that's valuable to somebody else. So we're in the process now of making that a solution available to the world's largest fashion brands as an enterprise solution. They can offer it to their customers. So your experience of a brand turning you away because they can't or they don't want to offer it, they, that's not... You know, we've taken the scariness, we've taken the pain out of it and made it really simple and easy for them to implement and so that they can have deeper and better relationships with their customers. Everybody wins. Um, <laughs> so we're about, what, sort of five five years in? If we were sat here around this table in Marlebone, if you once again came to revisit your your old stomping ground, <laughs> this neighbourhood, what will the conversation be like, do you think? What will be preoccupying you if we can look that far ahead, another five years? Do you think you'll be as concerned with these quotidian, the day-to-day details? Do you hope that it's all happening on such a level that your kind of, I don't know, relationship with the the detail has changed and you're still looking at big picture? Do you look ahead that far? How, how do you make sense of the future when you cast your eye in that direction? So are we talking about, is it for the business or for myself? Well, you, what about a little bit of both? Okay, okay. So for the business, I see us across Europe and across America, for sure. I see us as the the intel inside for the fashion industry. We see that for some brands, we will be enabling, a f- kind of, as I said, a full stack solution. They will want us to do that. But I think for other brands, they may want to set up their own. And in that case, they'll just need our technology and maybe a playbook to be able to execute that. So as I said, our vision is for this to be baked into the fashion experience. So that's what I see for the business and for the market in five years' time. Backing up a little bit, all of these industries the pace with which sustainability is disrupting the world's heaviest polluters is really accelerating. So if you think about energy, food, and fashion obviously is like, it has this unfortunate place up at the top. And what's happening in fashion in particular now is that, you know, obviously there's an enormous amount of consumer demand, but there's also a raft of legislation and there's a lot of public market investor scrutiny of these industries with these large negative externalities that is really going to force that change. So thousands and thousands of fashion brands are going to need to adopt, at least in part, circular fashion models. And we always say circular fashion doesn't happen without aftercare. Circular fashion is about extending the desirable life of an item, and you can't do that without looking after it. So that care, repair, and restoration, that's what we call aftercare. 
it's kind of hard to imagine sometimes when you're kind of deep in the trenches and like, how are you ever going to get out of here? But I always say to everybody, even the newest person on the team, I always say to them, you should be thinking about how do you put yourself out of a job? So through systemization, through building a team under you, through bringing people up to replace you about building redundancy and slack in the business. So I'm actively every day trying to put myself out of a job. <laughs> but it strikes me we won't find you on a lounger somewhere then. No, you won't find me on a lounger. The direction of travel for, for some reason. <laughs> but it's, you know, I, I don't like when people, speaking of things, that platitudes that are that are annoying, the business is not my baby. I have babies and those are my babies. And I imagine there are enough troubles, speaking of my Sorry. own experience. Well, they're, big, they're bigger now, so okay. they're not quite babies. They probably wouldn't, they wouldn't fair, like me describing Probably still a fair bit of trouble, though, I imagine. <laughs> but, but you are trying to, you're trying to raise something so that it can go out and be and, and live on in the world, hopefully in a bigger way than you brought it to the world and be productive and continue to add value. So call it raising a something or or call it you know putting myself out of a job either way we're trying to get the business to a place where it's not reliant on any one person vanessa jacobs co-founder and ceo of the restory you can learn more about vanessa her team and the work they do just head to the-restory.com now and that's it for this week my thanks as always to jack jewers for the expert mix and editing of this show I'm Tom Edwards, signing off. But don't forget to listen again and find out more at monocle.com or catch up with our archive of past editions there or wherever you get your podcasts. For now, though, it's goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.